This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Monoclonal gammopathies represent abnormal proteins produced by plasma cells and they're found in the blood. The most common monoclonal gammopathy is monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance or MUGUS. While MUGUS itself is not a malignancy and doesn't require treatment, patients with MUGUS have an increased risk of developing a variety of hematologic malignancies and therefore do require surveillance. The topic for today's podcast is monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, and our guest is Dr. Wilson Gonsalves, a hematologist and oncologist from the Division of Hematology at the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss how to diagnose MUGUS, who is more likely to develop this condition, and how we should follow patients who have it. Wilson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, my pleasure to be here, and thank you for this opportunity. I have been looking forward to this topic because uh, Muggus comes up relatively common, and um, it used to be much easier to take care of these patients. You know, we would check a serum and urine and electrophoresis, and now we've got it also immunoglobulin subtypes, uh, free light chain ratios, and a whole bunch of other tests. So it's it's become more complex in terms of following these patients. So I'm eager to hear what you have to say about that. Let me start by asking you to describe what's actually happening on a cellular level in those who have monoclonal gammopathy. Great. Uh, I think that's an important question to start off with. And I think perhaps just reviewing some key concepts will be crucial for our listeners. So number one, normal plasma cells basically are just very differentiated B cells that produce a large amount of specific immunoglobulins or antibodies per second and minute all the time. They are always active. And in everyone's bone marrow, if you were to look, there's a small number of these plasma cells residing in there that make these immunoglobulins. Now, collectively, these immunoglobulins that are produced from these various plasma cells are polyclonal in nature. They're all making immunoglobulins against a different antigen. So that's the first concept I think it's really key to establish here. The next concept, especially with all these nuances of light chains and light chain ratios, it's important to just take a step back and know what exactly is the immunoglobulin per se. So back to like immunology 101, the immunoglobulin really consists of two types of proteins bound to each other, the heavy chain, and the light chain. And they're labeled that way because the heavy chain is just a larger size of protein and the light chain is just a smaller size of protein. And then the heavy chain, they come in five types. And these five types are either G, A's, M's, E's, or D's. So your IgG's, your IgA's, your IgM's, and so forth. In hematology and immunology, we sometimes use the word isotype. And that's important so that we understand the language. So the heavy chain comes in five different isotypes. On the flip side, the light chains, they come in only two types. They're either a kappa light chain or a lambda light chain. And it's this different permutation and combination of the heavy chain and light chain that gives you that type of immunoglobulin. So you can have an IgG kappa, an IgG lambda, an IgA kappa, and so forth. So now going with these two key concepts, focusing on 
what's happening with MGS or MGUS or MUGUS, uh, however you want to pronounce it, is that monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, if you just break that term apart, monoclonal, it's really just one clone, one type of immunoglobulin or protein and gammopathy, another word for protein. And essentially what's happening is that you have the presence of an abnormal, either intact whole immunoglobulin that's monoclonal, or they're corresponding light chain fragments. So either just an, a kappa light chain by itself or a lambda light chain by itself. And this intact monoclonal immunoglobulin is sometimes referred to as what people use the word as M protein or M spike and so and so MGUS per se is really just a plasma cell disorder arising somewhere in the bone marrow. And it is important because as Bob Kyle, who originally defined it, which called Dr. Kyle, back almost uh, 60, 70 years ago, as he followed patients diligently in Olmsted County, showed that patients with this monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance have a lifetime risk of progression to serious disorders such as multiple myeloma, light chain amyloidosis, or other low-grade lymphoproliferative disorders. And at the time when you're seeing somebody with an MGUS, you don't quite know when these patients will develop those serious disorders. Soon, later, or whether they will ever develop. And that's where the undetermined significance part of the name comes. Okay. Now, going to the actual what's happening in the bone marrow with these cells. Clearly, these M proteins or light chain fragments that make up the MGUS are coming from abnormal plasma cells in the bone marrow. These are just plasma cells, just like other plasma cells. They go through the same pathway of differentiation from B cells. The unique thing about them is that they have abnormally regained the capacity to proliferate. All the normal plasma cells are just plasma cells by themselves and they're stagnant. They don't divide and duplicate themselves. So as a result, you get this clonal population of plasma cells in the bone marrow. And as such, they are just very genomically and immunophenotypically different from normal plasma cells. We clearly know what are some of the key genomic features that make this abnormal clonal plasma cell population different from the normal plasma cells. And almost all of them can be put into two buckets. They either have some genomic abnormalities where they have extra copies of the odd number chromosomes. In the hematology world, we call this their hyperdeployed genomic abnormalities. So they have trisomies or of uh, odd numbers, like an extra copy of three, five, seven, nine, and so forth in terms of chromosome numbers, or the other bucket is they have some primary translocation of the immunoglobulin heavy gene, which is on chromosome 14. And that we believe is a key initiating factor of what makes a normal plasma cell a clonal or a precancerous plasma cell. Now, finally, I'll just end with, if you were to ask what actually causes it, that's where we don't quite know what is that inciting event or what are the sequence of events that really take a normal plasma cell into this MGUS clonal type of plasma cell? And not all patients develop some of these hematologic malignancies. What percent do you think would go on to develop something uh, rather serious? That is a great question. So 
the average textbook answer is typically around 1% per year of patients with monoclonal gammopathy will develop a, a disorder that requires intervention such as multiple myeloma, light chain amyloidosis, or other low-grade lymphomas. But of course, over the last two decades, we have gotten to be even more nuanced, and there are particular features when we're evaluating patients that can help us understand, is that risk actually a little higher than 1% or a little lower than 1%? Mm -hmm. Most clinicians don't order serum protein electrophoresis as a screening test, but that's usually how we discover monoclonal gammopathy. So if we don't have a protein electrophoresis, how are these things found? When should we suspect them? That's a great observation and, and, and a very practical question. So number one, we don't go and advocate for people to be screened left and right for monoclonal gammopathy by just getting an SPEP. We don't order it as part of your cholesterol panel or so forth. But there are blood tests that sometimes get routinely ordered if you trace back the number of MGUS patients we see in our clinic, you can see that the primary care provider stumbled upon, let's just say they ordered a comprehensive metabolic panel and a total protein was part of that. And they found that the total protein was elevated. Well, it could be that this monoclonal gammopathy that exists is making that total protein in the serum elevated in quantity. And that was the first flag. Occasionally, people will order quantitative immunoglobulins like your IgG or IgA. Sometimes people think of celiac disease, let me check your IgA and so on. And they pick up an elevated quantitative immunoglobulin on there. That test is not the way to pick up a monoclonal protein. It'll pick up all the different IgAs or, uh, or IgGs or so on. But the fact that it's elevated then makes the practitioner think about, okay, could there be an MGUS? that's underlying this. Well, so who's at risk of developing this? I, I assume age has to be one of the risk factors. I don't think I've ever seen this in a very young patient. Who, who's got risk factors for uh, monoclonal gammopathies? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of work originating from the original studies that Dr. Kyle performed here in Olmsted County. So if you were to just break down and say risk factors for monoclonal gammopathy, and let's split them by what is uh, host-dependent and what is environmental. So from host-dependent, you can clearly see that there is an increased risk of developing an MGUS with age. In some of the like seminal studies done here at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Kyle noted that in patients who are 50 years and older, the risk of having an MGUS in this population was roughly about 3%. But as you increase the age. So if you take patients who are 70 and older, that prevalence increased from 3% to over 5%. And so basically, the older you get, there's an increasing risk of having MGUS. The other key factors are race. Clearly, in the United States, we've noted that people of African descent, African-Americans or, or Black persons, they're twice as likely to have MGUS than their Caucasian counterparts. And similarly, people of Asian descent actually have a lower incidence of MGUS than Caucasians. And there's likely something genetic here, because if you were to go back in some of the studies done by some of my colleagues at the Mayo Clinic, if they were to look at not even people of African descent in the United States, like you go over to Ghana, so people of, who are of pure African 
descent in Africa, living in Africa, never came to the United States, they have an increased prevalence of MGUS compared to a matched Caucasian population on there. Other host-derived factors that one would think of, clearly there have been several studies to show that obesity, and obesity can be defined by your BMI greater than 30 kilograms per meter square, has been a risk factor. Family history has been a big one. So first-degree relatives of patients with MGUS or myeloma have roughly a two- to three-fold higher risk of developing MGUS than other individuals with no such family history. And other things that, that come up all the time in the clinic when people ask, why did I get this? And you look back, there have been studies that have tried to associate this is this full concept of immune dysregulation. Like, for example, patients who have undergone solid organ transplant on uh, chronic immunosuppression of people with inflammatory bowel disease on chronic immunosuppression, there is a slightly higher risk of developing MGUS than the counterpopulation who do not have these issues. Mm -hmm. And then some other rarer, but clearly very strongly related are patients with Gaucher's disease have a, a much higher risk of developing MGUS. And then just going back in the second bucket, what are environmental factors? And I think the biggest one that has the most data on is really one's exposures to various pesticides and chemicals. And the, and the most famous in the news being the risk of Agent Orange exposure for our veterans and the risk of developing MGUS. Are there various types of MGUS and do some carry a more ominous prognosis than others? Again, you can take MGUS, and over the last 20 to 30 years, we've been able to look back and put them in different buckets. And really, the best way to categorize them is really into three subtypes based entirely on the most likely hematological condition they could develop in the future. So with that, you can put them in this combination of either non-IgM MGUSs, so that means that the intact monoclonal immunoglobulin that's being produced is not an IgM. So it's as simple as that. So it's either an IgA, an IgG, and very rarely do you see IgDs and IgEs, but one is non-IgM MGUS. So the next one then would be IgM MGUSs. So here, the intact monoclonal immunoglobulin is an IgM isotype. And the difference between these two are the non-IgM MGUSs are more likely to progress to multiple myeloma if they were to do so in the future. In an IgM MGUS, they are more likely to progress to Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia than IgM multiple myeloma. Not impossible to get IgM multiple myeloma, but it's just so rare. Mm -hmm. And the third one is lichen MGUS. And this is the group of folks where it's not a whole intact immunoglobulin that these clonal plasma cells are releasing out into the bloodstream. It's just a fragment of them. They're just putting out excess amounts of kappas or excess amounts of lambdas. And these patients are at higher risk of progressing to something called light chain multiple myeloma, where in all, it's just typically multiple myeloma, but just the protein being released is not an increased IgG or an IgA. It's an elevated kappa-free light chain only or a lambda-free light chain only. All right. So let's say we have a patient where we, for some reason, got a protein electrophoresis and it shows a monoclonal protein. What else should we be ordering to look at this patient? So if you just ordered a serum protein electrophoresis and you found a monoclonal protein, 
So key is, over here at the Mayo Clinic, whenever we order the protein electrophoresis, we automatically get reflex to a serum immunofixation study. And the difference between the two is the protein electrophoresis is essentially telling you there is an abnormal protein detected when we put this blood sample on our gel and we see a higher band in this area. And you can essentially quantify this abnormal amount of protein. What it's not doing is telling you what is that type of protein. Is it an IgG kappa, an IgA kappa, an IgM kappa? And that's where the immunofixation is key. They really go hand in hand. And I, and I say that because oh, here at Mayo Clinic, we have the luxury of it being linked together. And so we get that full answer that you have a monoclonal gammopathy of one gram per deciliter. It's a IgG kappa. But if you only order the SPEP without the immunofixation, your results is just going to show that you have an abnormal monoclonal band and maybe quantified at one, but you don't know what exactly it is. So key is if you just have the SPEP, always make sure there's a serum immunofixation that's ordered with it also. The next thing to order is make sure that whatever this clonoplasma cells that are there that's putting out this monoclonal protein that you're detecting on your SPEP, make sure it's not also putting out just serum-free light chains in excess. So it's always important to always add the serum-free light chain assay in there because that will give you an additional idea of whatever is happening in the marrow. Is it only putting that intact monoclonal immunoglobulin or is there also a lot of light chains? And I can tell you a number of times we've diagnosed myeloma patients where the SPAP may give you an IgG kappa that's maybe the size of 0.8 grams per deciliter. And you say, all right, that's not too impressive. But then you get the serum-free light chains and you find that the kappa light chain level is 120 milligram per deciliter and the upper limit of normal is like two. And you clearly know that whatever is happening here is putting out more light chains. And that is, if you just go off the SPIP, you really, you're not getting a good representation of what's happening on that. And once you find that, then the next step is to really ask the question, is this causing any clinical issues? So is this truly undetermined significance is, is what I think about in my head. So does this patient have multiple myeloma? Do they have any sort of crab features or so on? So clearly that would mean that you would get a CBC with differential, you'd get a serum calcium, you'd get a serum creatinine. And that will be a good start as a basic workup to understand what is, are there any other red flags associated with this monoclonal gammopathy? And then once you've confirmed that part, if there truly is this monoclonal protein, at least the first time it's helpful to order urine studies that are also looking for these proteins. So in our practice, we typically order at least the first time the 24 urine protein electrophoresis. And again, that should also be going hand in hand with a urine immunofixation. And we order it here at Mayo, they come lumped as one. But if you are at an institution where that does not happen, it's important to order both the urine protein electrophoresis as well as the urine immunofixation. And that's key because it will let us know how much of that protein is actually being spilled out in the urine. Is there any chance there's a lot of proteinuria that is unexplainable by this M protein? And could this M protein be causing additional conditions like light chain amyloidosis of the kidney or so if there's a high amount of protein in the urine. Are imaging studies needed in the initial evaluation? That's a great question. And this is something that has been an interest for a long time because as prevalent as uh, MGUS is, if you were to take every MGUS and treat them the same, that means we would have to get cross-sectional imaging on every MGUS patient. And this is where the decision-making has to be factored in based on what is the risk that this 
could be something more ominous than just MGUS itself. And so I think this is a good place for us to segment into how we look at MGUS and the risk stratification of MGUS and when we decide to order the imaging study. So if you were to take MGUS, I just mentioned earlier that the risk of progression is roughly about 1% per year. But work here at the Mayo Clinic really showed that you can take all these patients and if you were to look at just three factors, what is the isotype of that monoclonal protein? Is it an IgG or is it not an IgG? If it's not an IgG type, then you get one point as a risk factor. If your M protein size is greater than 1.5 grams per deciliter, you, that's another risk factor. And the third one is if you look at that serum-free light chain assay that you ordered and you find that the ratio, the kappa divided by the lambda ratio is abnormal from the range on there, that's a third risk factor. And each of those you get a point for. So if you have none of those, you have zero points, you are in the low risk MGUS category. Now, if you have one of those, then you're in the low intermediate risk. If you have two of those factors, you're in the high intermediate risk. And if you have all three of those factors, then you're in the high risk. And why is this important is because when we look at that, like in terms of the absolute risk of progressing in the next 20, 25 years to something that would need treatment, that low risk, the risk is like 2% or less. It's really low. And the low intermediate risk, it goes up to 10%. The high intermediate risk, it goes up to 20%. But then in the high risk patients, you're looking at somewhere between 30 to 40% risk in the next 20 to 25 years. And so using that, we then make those decisions in terms of if you are truly low risk, do you really need to get this whole body cross-sectional imaging and can we avoid that? And that's usually our practice. Mm -hmm. If somebody is clearly high intermediate risk, high risk, and even low intermediate risk after one evaluates the patient, clearly imaging can be ordered for them. And this ties in very well to the next part of, do you need a bone marrow exam? Because you know that is even a more invasive procedure that you'd want to get in, in patients with plasma cell disorders. And if we did it on every MGUS patient, there'd be a lot of bone marrow biopsies. And so we have quite of extensive follow-up and long-term data to suggest that really, if you're in that low-risk MGUS group, you really don't need the cross-sectional imaging. You really don't need the bone marrow exam. And then anything above low risk, it's always worth referring them to a hematologist or another specialist to kind of make that call that they need that. But a ballpark would say that anyone high risk or high intermediate risk, they would likely need the cross-sectional imaging as well as the bone marrow exam. Okay. So once we have a patient who have been diagnosed with MGUS, do they need the same tests annually for follow-up? Yeah. So this is, uh, so again, this all boils down to like where the original risk is and how should we actually follow them. So if I'm seeing a patient for the first time and they've, and it's the first time ever we have this value of a monoclonal protein that's present, but they're still low risk and we're not doing any other testing, you only have one time point. And so what our routine would be and what the guidelines would also recommend is bring them back in the next six months and repeat those same tests and see if there are any dynamic or evolutionary changes in the size of the monoclonal protein. Are things changing, increasing up, getting higher or so on? And if they're relatively stable, then you can just move to a yearly follow-up. And for some patients, if they truly are very, very low risk, like what happens in that patient where 
the SPAP and the immunofixation show there's an IgG kappa protein, but it's so small that they can't even put a number to it on the SPEP. It's just immunofixation positive. In those patients, you can probably also just check it again in two years or so rather than every year. On the flip side, if somebody is not in that low risk, yes, you really, after that initial six-month check, you should be checking it yearly because over a lifetime, there is a significant risk of progression. And it's not like if you go for five years and nothing changed, it's very unlikely to change again in the next 15 years. And Dr. Kyle has shown this even with his most recent follow-up as long as 40 years, that that risk of progression is always there at uh, roughly on average 1% per year, even 30 years out or 10 years out or 15 years out. Okay. But the first follow-up, generally six months, and then Just, annually things yeah. are stable. Absolutely. Generally, six months is a, is a safe bet to give you some comfort as to are things actually sure. changing? Is this something you need to watch more closely or not? Mm -hmm. Is there any treatment that would help prevent patients from transitioning to myeloma? I would say that that is probably one of the most important questions you get asked all the time in the clinic when patients present with MGUS because you know all of a sudden you're told you have this monocle disorder and could turn into malignancy. What can you do to prevent it? And right now, there's nothing that has been time-tested or proven to prevent the progression of MGUS to multiple myeloma. We have lots of treatments that can treat clonal plasma cells, that, like chemotherapies that we use for multiple myeloma and so forth. But we do not have the evidence yet to show that any of those types of treatments will actually benefit the patient long-term or make a difference long-term. And as such right now, there isn't any data to support either some form of pharmacologic or dietary or even lifestyle change that could prevent the progression of MS. Uh, a common thing that people ask is, should I exercise more, eat healthy, and so on? And really my answer to that is, that's going to help you no matter what. So that is the most logical thing to do. If you have MGUS and now that's that's something you want to try. Mm -hmm. Well, I know this is uh, this podcast is on monoclonal gammopathies, but multiple myeloma, we've known of that syndrome for many, many years. Has there been much progress in the management of patients with myeloma? Absolutely. If you were to take the malignancy that has had the most number of advances in the last two decades, especially when you consider that multiple myeloma counts for only 1% of all cancers, myeloma has probably had that effect. It's had the most number of drug approvals in the last two decades. The way we treat people today is so different than how we treated people two decades ago. And a lot of this stems from a much better understanding of disease biology, and that has led to extremely effective therapies that have really been not only more effective than the last three, four decades prior to that, but they've also been so tolerable in terms of how people were able to stay on therapies for long periods of time and lead an almost near normal lifestyle than patients without multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. And right now we are experiencing this huge explosion in the field of immunotherapies, And multiple myeloma has, has really benefited from that with some of the most novel antibody-based immunotherapies that have been approved, as well as 
the latest advances in cellular therapy, such as CAR T-cell therapies or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell treatments. And so it's very likely that in the next 10 years, the landscape again will be completely changed on how we practice and how we treat multiple myeloma and how we sequence some of these treatments. They are likely going to move way up front in the newly diagnosed setting. And as a proof with all those advances, we've clearly shown over the last two decades, there have been consistent improvements in the overall survival of patients with multiple myeloma now. That's really encouraging news. Well, we've been discussing monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance with Dr. Wilson Gonsalves, a hematologist oncologist from the Mayo Clinic. Wilson, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.